Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of October 22nd, 2018. On this week's show, it's a guest palooza. Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and Emma Bacheleri of Sports Illustrated will preview the World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Author Michael Sokolov and Yahoo's Dan Wetzel will discuss the ongoing college basketball corruption trial, which has surfaced big names, but also the small-time behavior of bit players in the multi-billion dollar business. And finally, writer Liam Boylan-Pett and Professor Lewis Moore will talk about Bob Beeman's record-shattering long jump 50 years ago and the Olympics civil rights protest that went largely unnoticed. Josh Levine is off this week. I'll be trying to go nine here in Slate's Washington, D.C. studios, or maybe I'll just pitch to one batter and go home. Only my right UCL and the crafty manager knows for sure. Joining me now to discuss actual non-metaphorical baseball are the aforementioned Ben Lindbergh. Hey, Ben. Hey, Stefan. Good to be back. And the aforementioned Emma Bacheleri. Hey, Emma. Hi. All right, Dodgers Red Sox, 102 years since they met in a series. Not that that's especially relevant. It was Brooklyn against Boston then. And it's 100 years since 1918, which I hoped would never stop being a chant in the Bronx. But alas, (laughs) is no more three times over. Ben, this could be very good. Big market teams quibbling about who's the bigger market. Um, Lots of young and interesting players. Um, I'm excited about this, even though I hate Boston, or maybe that's why I'm excited about it because I think they might lose. I am too. I barely remember that 1916 Red Sox versus Brooklyn Robins matchup. So I'm ready for a rematch. I think there are a lot of good young stars in this series, obviously, whether it's the likely AL MVP Mookie Betts or whether on the Nano side you have Manny Machado, who's kind of done a a heel turn here in October, or you could go to Yasiel Puig or Bellinger. There's just a whole lot of young talent here and really good teams, probably the best teams in their respective leagues, or at least you could make that case, the biggest payrolls in their respective leagues, the old historic stadiums on either side. I think Probably some people are sort of sick of seeing both of these teams, even though they haven't actually matched up against each other. And even though the Dodgers haven't won a World Series in 30 years, we've seen these teams in the playoffs a lot lately, but they probably are the best teams that we could be seeing at this point. And so I think there's a a lot here. There are a lot of links between these teams, sort of a a lot of under the radar storylines. And so I'm looking forward to it. Emma, the Red Sox seem to be as good as you'd expect a 108-win regular season team to be, despite the fan narrative in Boston of overcoming diversity. Uh, Jeff Sullivan (laughs) at Fangraphs put together a table looking at the best outfields from 2002 through 2018. And the Red Sox current outfield of Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr., and Andrew Benatendi 
come out number one in batting, number two in base running, number five in fielding, and number one in war by two full runs. And then Jeff Sullivan went to baseball reference and found that the Red Sox are tied for eighth place (laughs) in history in hitting this outfield. Sullivan says they are somewhere in that conversation for the best outfield in history. Um, That seems like a stretch. It's hard to know when you're watching a group of athletes just how good they are. Do you think that the Red Sox outfield and by extension the rest of the team are aren't that good? Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little crazy, but you know, you think about it, you have vets who can do literally just about anything in any capacity and then Bradley's defense is just so phenomenal and, you know, and looking at War measuring him all around, not as strong at the plate as the other guys, but also great on the base paths and adds value there. Um, Benintendi great at the plate and yeah, really kind of does all come together in a way that sounds insane to think about being among the best of all time, but, uh, break it down, uh, isn't quite that far-fetched. Um, and then is even more insane to think about the fact that you have JD Martinez as the designated hitter who might also see, uh, time in the outfield when they're out in, LA for playing by national league rules and think that you can have that kind of offensive power being added into this already all time great outfield. And uh, yeah, it's pretty terrifying. And Ben, the Dodgers finally seem to realize that they're a good team. They lost last year's World Series in seven games to Houston. They underachieved to 92 wins in the regular season, but they remain stacked. And uh, on the ringer, your colleague Michael Bauman wrote after game seven on Sunday that the Dodgers have 10 position players who had an OPS plus of 110 or better in at least 200 plate appearances. This is a really good team and and and, and maybe not um, – a surprise, of course, because of the payroll and because of the recent history. But during the regular season, there were moments when you did not think they would be here in October. Yeah, they had an abysmal start to the season. But I think that this isn't as much of a mismatch as you would think if you just look at those regular season win totals, 108 for the Red Sox, 92 for the Dodgers. If you look at some of the underlying metrics, they suggest that maybe the Dodgers are just as good as the Red Sox or or roughly, you know, look at the run differentials, look at some of the other ways that we assess team quality aside from just the wins and losses. And the Dodgers are really right up there with the Red Sox. And yes, they were 10 games under 500 in mid-May and it's rare for a team to make this kind of comeback. But I think you look at what happened to them after that point. You know, they lost Corey Seager, who was maybe their best overall player in the past couple of years. He was out for the season. They went out and traded for Manny Machado, which is uh, as pretty close to a lateral move as you can make when you lose someone like Corey Seager. And then they were without Justin Turner for the first 40 games or so of the season. And once he came back, once you had Machado in the fold, they really were sort of a different team. So to look at the way they started the season and apply it to their current roster, I think would be a mistake. This is actually a a pretty close matchup. Let's talk a little bit about Clayton Kershaw and David Price. Kershaw of the Dodgers, of course, Price of the Red Sox. They laid to rest, at least for a few days, the prevailing narrative that they are playoff chokers. Uh, Kershaw has had a 2.36 ERA and four appearances, two wins, a save in Game 7 versus the Brewers. Price threw a three-hitter with no walks and nine strikeouts in Game 5 of the ALCS. I'm always a little disappointed when a prevailing narrative dies, Emma. Um, (laughs) But 
I mean, I don't know if this one was fair in Kershaw's case to begin with. Certainly, it was, you know, small sample size, small sample size in prices. Um, but I do think it sort of re-energizes the, or at least it, it puts a bright focus on how they will do in the World Series. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure if either of these prevailing narratives has fully died. I think it would only take one, not even a bad performance, but moments of weakness to reawaken either of those narratives with full force, you know, given how strong they've been for years now. And if you look at, especially with Kershaw, he's had a lot of good playoff performances in the past that have just been surrounded by plenty of ones that haven't been good. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's uh, anything that he's been able to do to fully kill the narrative just because of how uh, well established it is. But uh, yeah, I think it certainly adds another layer of um, attention and focus to what they're going to do here. And um, yeah, I don't think the narrative is fully dead. I don't think a few performances is enough to kill it for either one. I don't think Price finally getting the win um, in that last game of the ALCS is going to be enough to put the nerves to rest, certainly. And, um, yeah. I hear Price was listening to your segment from last week with Jeff Passan on a loop just as motivation, Stefan. He might have been. Or maybe he just upped his mental (laughs) skills game, Ben. He really doubled down on his (laughs) mental skills approach. He had extra meetings with his his mental skills coordinator on the Red Sox. Yeah, that might have been it. No, it's true that these two guys, even now, after their recent strong performances, they do still have the biggest differentials between their regular season career ERAs and their postseason ERAs of anyone with as many postseason innings as they pitched. So you can still say it's an accurate statement to say that they have pitched worse in the postseason or at least allowed more runs in the postseason than they have in the regular season. But I just don't find the narrative all that compelling because individually they do have such strong performances that you'd have to say that the choking or that the wilting under pressure is selective and it happens in some games and some years and some series, but not at other times because they both have come up big at times. So to me, that makes it a little less convincing. And neither of these guys is as good as he once was. They're both, I think, past their very high Uh peaks, although they're both very, very good starting pitchers still. So in that sense, they're a little more vulnerable than they used to be. But I still am not buying the playoff narrative, but I'm sure it will rear its head again if either of them has a shaky start in this series. Oh, for sure. Um, Another uh, trend that we discussed on the podcast was bullpenning and the Bre- the Brewers did it to great success in the regular season, not quite so much in the playoffs and going down to the Dodgers in, in that seven game series. Emma, you wrote about how the Brewers are moving to what's called positionless baseball. And you noted in your piece that Milwaukee shifted this season more than any other team in the national league. And that the team's larger philosophy is that a position doesn't have to be any more anything more than one of baseball's social constructs. The Brewers infield is in four men at four positions. It's a set of guys who have been brought together for maximum flexibility, able to be configured in any number of different ways, changing not just from game to game, but from batter to batter in an attempt to nail the best defensive arrangement at any given time. This almost seems obvious 
you know, the way things seem obvious in retrospect, like, oh, if we have more flexible athletes who can do multiple things, especially in a, in a, in a game that is moving toward a much more flexible approach toward especially defending, that we should try to maximize that advantage if we can. Right. Like, it makes a lot of sense from a, I mean, just a cynical value standpoint, like, that you can get the most value out of your players by getting players who can play multiple roles, like, whatever that may look like. Um, But, yeah, what the Brewers have done with it is, I think, a step past uh, the way that the the game has been trending as a whole for a little bit now, Um, just in that they've really embraced that all the way with their infield um, in terms of just moving guys all over the place, uh, being so flexible in, in how much they shifted and who's playing what position, um, encouraging guys to take on new roles. Um, and I mean, you saw in just the 10 playoff games, they played seven in the NLCS and three in the NLDS. I think they used five different infield configurations um, with the same small set of guys. So that kind of, I think, goes to show just how flexible they've gotten with that. Um and even though they're out of it now, obviously, I think the Dodgers also embody that to a certain extent, um, that they don't really have a static lineup so much as they have, you know, a group of guys they're moving around all the time, particularly focused on getting the platoon advantage as much as possible. Um, and yeah, I think definitely a place you see the game itself trending more and more, but particularly the Brewers with their infields and then also, you know, the Dodgers who beat them in the NLCS are doing this a lot too. Right. And and one example of that, Ben, was uh, Chris Taylor, who was a throw-in in a trade a couple of years ago, right? He started game seven at second base, ended up moving to left field, and he made basically the game and series deciding catch. Yeah. In fact, the, the Dodgers have a really historic rate of using guys at positions other than their primary positions. I'm working on a piece for this week about something called their flex score, which is something that Randy Gisarely came up for, uh, came up with in an article at The Ringer a couple of years ago. It just counts up the number of games that guys start at positions other than their main position. And if you look at the Dodgers this year by that metric, there has never been a good team. There's never been a 90 win team. There's never been a playoff team that had this many combined games coming from players who were not at their primary position. So it's not just Taylor, who, as you mentioned, is rotating from infield to outfield within games all the time. It's also Bellinger. It's also Max Muncy. It's even Machado, who's moved from shortstop to third. And it makes a lot of sense because I think in this day and age, when you do have these giant bullpens, as we've been talking about, there's only so much room for bench players. And so if you can have guys who play multiple positions, that really makes the manager's job a lot easier. In addition to the positioning and the shifting that Emma mentioned, and there are just fewer balls in play, period. So in theory, you should be able to get away with stationing someone who's not a great fielder at a particular position. So a lot of these teams are really taking advantage of that trend. And you mentioned um, tons of pitching changes, bigger bullpens. You wrote a piece for The Ringer last week, Ben, noting that for these reasons and others, the playoffs have been really interesting. The baseball has been dramatic and in some cases the play has been outstanding there have been terrific storylines and terrific matchups but they've also been terrible in some ways because they magnify everything that's problematic with major league baseball right now long games slow games all these pitching changes fewer balls in play as you mentioned none of that is particularly good for the sport on a macro level emma 
yeah. I mean, I think writ large, I agree in terms of, you know, big trending items. But as far as how it manifests in the playoffs, I think it can be easy to uh, it, it's easier to find it entertaining that, you know, a lot of times those pitching changes are it's naturally a more high stakes moment because everything is more high stakes and you're not, you know, frustrated to see a, an extra commercial break in the sixth inning and a random game in August. It, it feels more important. It It's easy to like overlook, you know, what this means as a general trending item. Um, and I think Ben reflected that in the piece really well, that it doesn't necessarily f- make the baseball feel worse in the moment that the way these trends manifest in October um, can just feel more fun and more exciting that, you know, a longer game, more pitching changes, the ball and play less. It doesn't have to feel quite so uh boring as it can in the regular season but um yes it's certainly it's all of the trends that we've seen throughout the this year the preceding years kind of dialed up to 11 um which probably isn't great from just a basic entertainment standpoint from the average fan um as a big macro change but I don't think it necessarily has to make the baseball less fun and less interesting right now in October when the stakes are high enough to support it. Yeah. Only if you're sort of trying to keep your eyelids open at 1230 (laughs) AM on the East coast. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely has a breaking point, but I think for the most part it can work up to a certain point. Ben, go ahead. It was your piece. Talk. Yeah, no, I agree with what Emma said. I mean, I I think so much of it is dependent on the stakes and the suspense. It's that games are so much longer and there's so many more breaks in the action, whether it's replay reviews, which we see much more often in the postseason, or it's pitching changes, there are more strikeouts, everything that people wring their hands about in baseball and say that baseball is dying for this reason and that reason, it just gets amped up and magnified when the playoffs roll around. And I think for those of us who are already invested and we've been following this all season and we know the players and the teams and the storylines, it's not such a big problem. I mean, if a game is four hours instead of three hours, I'm still going to watch it till the end. But your average fan and baseball is kind of a, a regional local sport that does great in local ratings, but doesn't do as well in national ratings. And this is the time of year when baseball does become a national storyline. And you figure at least some people tune in and say, why don't I take a look and see what I've been missing with this baseball thing? And then suddenly games are four and a half hours long. It's probably not the best advertisement to the the undecided voter of sports fans, but to the committed voter, I think those of us who are already ideologically aligned with baseball, we're willing to go along with it. I think one thing that might help the undecided voter come around is if we talk about playoff beefs. There's been some great beefs in these playoffs. (laughs) The Astros were accused of espionage. The Dodgers were accused of stealing signs. Christian Yelich of the Brewers called Manny Machado of the Dodgers a motherfucker after Machado basically kicked (laughs) Jesus Aguilar at first base. Uh, And we've got some potential World Series beef involving Machado. It's an old beef. Goes back to 2017 with Chris Sale, the Red Sox pitcher. Sale threw a 98-mile-per-hour fastball behind Machado in May of 2017 when Machado was with Baltimore. And the beef was triggered by Machado sliding spikes up into Dustin Pedroia, who ended up having to miss a few games. I want to listen to the audio of of Manny Machado (laughs) from then because it's really great audio. And it could set the table for our, our World Series beef. 
What do you think? Power stuff. I mean, that's, that's stuff that you don't can do. But I mean, I'm not on that side. I'm not on that organization. They're still thinking about that same slide that I did. That was no, that was no intention in, on hurting anybody. And you know, I'm still paying. I'm still trying to get hit at, get thrown out of my head, get thrown out everywhere. I've lost my respect for the organization, for that coaching staff, for everyone over there. This is some good potential beef, Ben. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I called Machado's uh, a heel turn, but it's not really because he's always kind of been this way. I think we're just noticing it more now because it's on the stage as opposed to him being on the very terri- terrible Orioles earlier this year. But he has a whole history going back years with the Red Sox and they had a, a beanball war last year that was causing brawls and comments where he was calling the Red Sox cowards and criticizing the whole organization. And now this postseason, he seems to have amped things up a notch. There have been crotch grabs galore. He's almost bragged about not hustling at times. He is very hateable if he is not your own teammate and your own player at this point. So I think he's sort of the the flashpoint of this. And then Yasiel Puig, of course, as always, whether he deserves it or not, is always another target of people who are upset about the game being played a certain way. Yes. Let's talk about Yasiel Puig, Emma. Um, He crotch chopped, not crotch grabbed. He crotch chopped after his uh, three-run homer in Game 7 against the Brewers. And I think this has the potential for being a classically stupid baseball beef. Um, (laughs) He also bat-flipped after that homer, um, and he hit .333 in the the series and led the team in total bases, or led the whole series in total bases. Um, Do do you think crotch chopping can, uh, can, can, can take its place among good baseball beefs, Emma, and... Do you have any other baseball beef predictions for the World Series? Uh, I really hope it can. Uh, Just because, I mean, that whole celebration was fantastic. You had not just the bat flip, not just the crotch chop. uh, There was also a throat slash, I believe, at one point. He did like a flexing motion. Mm. Um, It was just so much, which is perfect uh, beef ground laying. Um, Ground beef. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think this was also a fairly low-key regular season for Yasiel Puig. Like, you know, in past years, we've had storylines about teammates anonymously kind of trashing him to the media, him getting sent down to the minors, getting benched. And this year, we didn't have any of that. And it's just getting to enjoy him in this full-fledged form on the biggest stage possible, still being as vivacious slash obnoxious depending on your point of view as he can possibly be and yeah it is just perfect so i really hope we get to see uh more of that um maybe take some of the nba voters if we're using the undecided voter uh mindset because i think that that sort of personality beef stirring i think something that we haven't seen as much in baseball lately and it's just perfect for oh, it. Oh yeah, I mean it's just the joy. I mean Puig in the locker room after they won the the pennant was lovely. It's the sort of unfiltered, unadulterated just this total joy in the moment and yeah, Ben, baseball needs this and any sport needs this because that's what sports should be about. It should be about that emotion and about that catharsis and 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 feeling of 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 expression of emotion 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that is changing slowly but surely in baseball and with many columns written in response. But I think that these two collections of players definitely look like they're having fun when they play baseball, which makes it easier for us to have fun watching them play baseball. So I'm very much in favor of it. Emma Bacheleri writes about baseball for Sports Illustrated. Emma, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And Ben Lindbergh writes about it for The Ringer. He's also the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team, which is out in paperback. Ben, thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Before we get to the college basketball fraud trial, I wanted to let you know that the guests for that segment, Dan Wetzel and Michael Sokolov, will stick around for our Slate Plus bonus segment to discuss a new proposal from the NBA to pay a few high school players to play one season in its developmental G League instead of going to college. To hear that, you need to join Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year, and you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. If you've paid even the slightest attention to college basketball during any part of your lifetime, you know the sport has never been on the pristine amateur student-athlete old-school tie up and up. Since the 1950s, if not earlier, boosters and gamblers and agents and runners have been slipping envelopes of cash to boys who play basketball well, not to mention other benefits from cars to jobs to sneaker company swag. Now, in a federal courthouse in Manhattan, a jury is about to begin deliberating in the first of three planned trials of, so far anyway, bit players in the business of college basketball recruitment and in the process has exposed a tiny slice of that world. Two people are here to talk about the case with me. One is Dan Wetzel, who's been covering the trial for Yahoo Sports. Hey, Dan. Hello, how are you? Very well. And the other is Michael Sokolov. He is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and the author of the brand new book, The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, a story of corruption, scandal, and the big business of college basketball. Hey, Mike. Hey, Stefan. All right. At its core, this case is about people in the biosphere of college basketball buying players for universities. The amounts are hardly eye-popping, tens and in some cases $100,000. The tactics are pretty crude and familiar, but there are a lot of names and figures and text messages. At its core, Dan, this is about universities, as I said, buying the service of basketball players. But that's not how the government is framing the case, is it? No, they are framing the universities as the victims here. Um, 
in that by paying a player's family, you render that player ineligible, and the university would never give a scholarship to an ineligible player, and by playing that ineligible player unbeknownst to the school, they would uh, potentially incur the wrath of the NCA, which could punish them financially and through other sanctions and vacated wins and all of that. Now, obviously, the other side says, are you kidding me? We're giving, we're helping a school get a five-star basketball player so they can win. We are helping, not harming these universities, and we're really working at either the spoken or implied consent of the um, of the the basketball coaches who to them represent the university. So that's really the heart of the case right there. And Mike, your book focuses on one of those coaches, Rick Pitino, and some of the players who entered his orbit and are part of this trial. One is a young guy named Tugs Bowen, Brian Bowen Jr. I don't want to get blinded by the details of his case, but the story is pretty representative, not only of the prosecution, but the courting of high school basketball stars, isn't it? Yes. I mean, Tugs is a, was a good player, not a great player, sweet kid. His father was his mentor. And his father was a figure in what you beautifully put it, the biosphere of, of basketball. And his father took a lot of money or took money a lot of times on behalf of his kids' play in AAU basketball or to switch high schools. His father just kept taking money. and But the money he took for him to go to Louisville was one quarter of one percent of Rick Pitino's annual salary. So the money that actually came to the Bowen family was $19,500. It's nothing. And, but it really sort of encapsulates the inequalities here because it, it became criminalized and Bowen lost his college career. And in losing his college career, this is a, a guy that went to play and he's playing in Australia? He's playing in Australia and, uh, you know, he wants to be in the NBA like all these kids do. He's 7,000 miles from the closest NBA franchise. He'll get scouted. But let's face it, that's a harder road to be one of the thousand or so overseas, overseas players trying to get noticed by the NBA than it is to go to Louisville and be on national TV all the time. Right. And it's also reflective of sort of the, the, the Casablanca nature of this case. Everybody is shocked. Oh, my God. You know, uh, the coaches' names are Bill Self of Kansas has popped up in texts and emails among some of these parties. You know, talk of an Adidas black ops team. Come on. There's this the cash and the cars. Dan, it's, it's been pretty absurd, but of course there are real-life implications here. As you've been covering the trial and you've been in the courtroom, what have been some of your favorite bits of absurdity, and how do you not roll your eyes at some of the, the stuff that, that, that's been brought up in the case? Uh, yeah, I don't know how you don't. I, I mean, I think there's just the basic, uh, the basic setting of this. Okay, it's the Southern District of New York. They handle the most, so, most of the biggest and complex federal cases, Ponzi schemes, uh, terrorism, uh, you know, huge drug kingpin murders, uh, in huge fraud cases. You know, you'll you'll look on the docket and it'll say, uh, courtroom here. A guy accused of stealing eighty-five million in defrauding nursing homes, where eleven elderly died because of substandard conditions, and then it's this this one. You know, it's basically did 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 Brian Bowen's dad get get uh, two grand a month from an agent? And so you're you're here in you're in Manhattan. You got this spectacular courthouse that it's incredible views, and so almost just that's the absurdity. There's a million little details that are just nuts, but you're just like, is this really? 
uh, a federal case. Uh, the people involved knew they were they were violating NCA rules. I don't think one of them ever thought in their wildest dreams they could end up in in federal court, charged facing conceivably years and years and years in prison. It's probably going to be smaller sentences if they're convicted. But just the idea that we got there. Now I also covered Deflate Gate in the same building, so that was even more. More absurd than this, but <laughs> except that but dude did something time, wrong. Like, that quarterback did something yeah, wrong. That was important. That was the NFL. Yeah. Hey Dan, I don't I don't know if you were in the courtroom uh, when this occurred, but but I had spent a couple days there, and there was one great moment when um, the defense attorney, one of the defense attorneys, says to Bowen Senior, says, "So you've been pimping out your namesake since he was 14 years old." And Bowen Sr. actually doesn't disagree, only quibbles about the age. He says, uh, maybe 15 or 16. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's, that's the underlying reality here is that everybody is in on this. Nobody is blind to this. I mean, literally, you know, I was channel surfing last night and came across the ESPN doc for, for the love of basketball or basketball, a love story. Um, and it was a segment about. Um, about Molinas and, and gambling in the 1950s and early 60s and Connie Hawkins and Ron Brown, these guys getting dragged into this case unwittingly and having their careers largely destroyed. And the narrative that's built up, of course, is that, oh, this is awful. And the universities have successfully, through the federal government's prosecution, I think, allowed themselves to be, you know, very willingly and I think happily portrayed as the victims of this fraud. As you said, Dan, it seems to me, though, that if you really want to go after this, these they're, they're unnamed co-conspirators in this trial, the chancellors and the presidents and the athletic directors and the NCAA, which, Mike, you labeled a shadow defendant in the case. You said that the NCAA's rules are not followed and are not regarded as having any moral authority, not by the players, their families, their youth coaches, or by many of the college coaches seeking their services. Right. I mean, this is a replay of of the people you just referenced, Connie Hawkins going back to the 50s, who was a forerunner of Julius Irving, of Michael Jordan. It's the same story over and over and over again. But if you want to clean it up, don't go after the kids, which they've always done. And in essence, they're doing here. I mean, Brian Bowen Jr. got dragged up to the FBI offices in New York. Other kids have been interviewed. They've not been charged. But you have to understand, this is terrifying. You've now got law enforcement on the beat of grassroots basketball at a time when African-American parents are already concerned about police treatment of their boys. Now you've got cops on the beat in, in youth basketball. So don't do that. Go after the shadow defendants, which is the big business of college basketball. And Dan, in, in, a, in a column you wrote last week, you blistered the NCAA and its president, Mark Emmert, who does seem happy to play this role of victim instead of the role you might expect that Mark Emmert and the NCAA to play, which is overseer with the ability to enact real reform, to take a look at the, the details of this trial and the knowledge that we've built up over the decades and say, let us do something. You wrote college basketball is burning right here for everyone to see and hear. And Mark Emmert can't even be troubled to show up and fiddle in the back of the courthouse. Yeah, nobody showed. Nobody really showed up for the NCAA. They wouldn't ad even admit they had anyone. I believe that you know they have an outside counsel that's kind of rotating attorneys through. Uh, I was there for every day. I know everybody was there every day, and there's nobody from the NCAA. I think it's like it, 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 the Casablanca part is is very very good. It's a very apt comparison. Like the the feds keep saying, well, you have these compliance department. The compliance directors are, are against cheating. 
and they bring the compliance people up there and they're all nice people. But the compliance department basically consists of fill out this form to say you didn't cheat. There's no actual compliance of like looking into it. Like Brian Bowen, Tugs Bowen signed as a five-star recruit in June of his senior year. Most five-star, he's the last guy available. Five-star recruits don't become available in June. Anybody, this the compliance department at Louisville is run by a guy who's been there 20 years. Rick Patino knew this was rare. And so this guy falls into their laps. And instead of saying, geez, what's up with the Bowens? How many high schools did he go to? Where are they living? Uh, who are they t- aligned with? How many AAU teams did they play with? All the things that would raise red fl- all the red flags, they just ignored them and said, oh, we'll take them. What a lucky break for us. It's amazing. We got, you know, we can't believe it. And, and this guy just shows up and we recruited him for eight days. Like the compliance department asked no questions because the compliance department, a compliance director at every school is making, you know, X number of dollars and the head coach is making, you know, 50 X number of dollars. And so there's no way a compliance director, will hold on coach Patino. I want to look into his housing situation. So Louisville then acts shocked to find out that Brian Bowen senior took money when they later find out he's living in a, a hotel. He's planning on living in a, a, a nice hotel, the Galt house in Louisville for the entire year. Like who lives in a hotel for a year? Like how much money do you got to have for that? Let alone if you're a disabled, a, a police officer living on disability. Well, and not so, only that, Dan, right? Like, the acknowledgement, you know, the, the understanding is that, come on, he's going to be there for six months. I mean, this is like, this is a joke from the outset. And who's kidding whom? You know, and everything, I, Dan, everything Dan just said about this process and not looking into it, until the point he still ends up available in June, everything Dan said would be true of almost every other prospect. You know, multiple high schools, multiple AAU teams, kids move all across the country, and money is clearly being exchanged for them to do that. If any of these kids' talent was music or acting or anything else, arts, whatever, it'd be no big deal. If you were the star, you had a star young actress and she moves with her mom to Hollywood and is put up by, you know, CAA to try to become a movie star, you'd be like, hey, great. Good for you. Good luck. I hope it works. (laughs) Only in basketball do we sit there and football a little bit and sit there and go, that's terrible. We can't actually try to – I mean – what the goal of all these guys should be make the NBA, just like the goal of every talented 10-year-old singer is to get a record deal. Hey, we're moving to Nashville. We're going to try this. But in, in, in this sport, because of the NCAA's grip on the American consciousness, it's like, well, we, we just can't – that, that's terrible. We got to bring the FBI in on, on how, the heck, uh, how the heck this kid and his parents – like there's nothing wrong if Adidas wants to pay – a high school basketball, a high school kid from Saginaw, Michigan, to play summer basketball for them. Basically, hire them for a summer job. Because that's Great. what it is, right? Why is this a problem? Why is the NCA get to stand in the way of a private business and a private person making a, a a completely legal deal? And the ultimate irony, of course, is that the real victim are these kids. It's these athletes. They're defrauded of a substantive education. They're defrauded of the opportunity to earn fair market value for their skills, both as high school players and as college players, which is a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, Sally Jenkins, I thought, wrote a really trenchant column in the Washington Post last week, which pointed out that... You know, this is Penny Annie scapegoating that's not going to deter anyone, really. Um, you want to really deter and have an impact federal government? Bring a RICO case. 
Right. Charge and a president, charge a booster, an AD, a coach, a shoe company, donors with conspiring to defraud. Right. And But what we're talking about, then there's this parallel universe, this vacuum-sealed world. So you've got the judge in this case who made the jury pledge of allegiance to the NCAA model. Say, we all agree, right, that all what they get is their scholarships. You had Condoleezza, Condoleezza Rice's panel say basically the same thing. We want to keep the amateur model. What the three of us are saying right now is, what amateur model? Right. There is no right. ma- amateur model. It's a fiction. Yeah, absolutely. It's not. I mean, it's just what you see is there was a day when, you know, a, a basketball recruit in the 1970s would show up at Indiana to play for Bob Knight. And almost no one would know who he is. You had to follow some like recruiting newsletter or you had to be from his hometown or something like that. Now, and so you could say, hey, professional basketball doesn't begin at least until you get to Indiana, but really until you make the NBA. Now, Zion Williamson, who's the number uh, one of the one of the top recruits in the country, is going to Duke. He has 1.7 million Instagram followers. Okay, Dan, Dan, I have a question for you though. How many other people are making money off of Zion Williamson? So you talked about recruiting. How many people are making a living off of following recruiting? You know, that's that's another unseen way. So that so that you know the you know rivals.com, I can't even add up who they all are. These things have been sold for for several hundred million dollars. Right. I mean, that's crazy. So somebody's in the business of tracking what a 15 and a 16-year-old does and we're making money off them. Everybody's making money off these kids. And here's the thing, but they're professionals now before they arrive. Sure. Okay, you're a professional if someone's willing to pay you to do something. Doesn't matter what it is. You go rake someone's leaves, you're a professional leaf raker, 20 bucks, whatever. If Adidas is willing to pay Brian Bowen $25,000 to play summer ball when he's 16 years old, he's a professional. College is not the gateway to becoming a pro. It is in the middle of the process now. And so their rules stunt the whole thing. You're a pro now if you're a good basketball player, 14, 15 years old. And that's the that to me is the big difference. We have law, we have these NCAA rules built like it's still 1972. It's 2018. And the point you just made, Dan, about Zion Williamson and his Instagram followers is an important one. I mean, there are people that monetize their social media followings. And if you he have could, 1.3 million followers on Instagram and who knows how many on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever, there's money to be made there that Zion Williamson isn't participating in. So when Coach K at Duke comments on the trial and says, it's a blip, it's not what's happening, that is among the most disingenuous things that a a leader can say. Like He wants us to believe that, that Zion Williamson is at Duke because he wants to go take classes at the Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics. <laughs> I mean, let's be realistic here. Zion Williamson is foregoing his career for two years or three years, say junior year of high school, senior year of high school, and this one year gap year at, at Duke in order to become a millionaire. You know, that's true. And I think that we look at all those top level kids and, you know, you can make a case that the deal is good for Zion Williamson. Just wait a year, dude. You can say that for the top 15 or 20 kids. I think when you look at corruption and you look, uh, you, we should look at the middle kids who are also foregoing being a real student. They're part of this process. Money is being made off them. They're festooned in all their, their Adidas gear. They're human billboards. 
And I seriously think, uh, do, does anybody think that point shaving has left college basketball? You know, if you go up to the guy who's the sixth, you know, the, the second guy off the bench for Duke or whoever and say, hey, you, you're never really going to make it in the pros. You want to get involved in this thing? I mean, I would not be surprised if we see that come back because it's the same thing. There are people going to tempt kids who are not being, not being paid, and Zion's going to get paid. But there are a lot of kids out there still not going to get paid. Right. You don't know what's going to happen with Zion Williamson. You do, I mean, you just don't. And, yeah, you can say wait a year or two years, and I, get, I totally get your point. Zion will benefit. His Instagram will go up by playing at Duke. Duke will give him a there – is, there is a benefit to what's going to happen uh-huh. with Zion Williamson. He is an incredible dunker. He will be a sensation all winter. However, like right now, I talked to pro sports agents and marketers. They could he could sell advertisements on on his Instagram page, fifty to hundred grand per post. He has teenagers following him, mainly teenage boys, because he's the greatest dunker you will, mm-hmm. one of the great dunkers you will ever see. How many and YouTube so, videos could this kid make and sell? His, his senior, his like he has a highlight tape with two million. It, it's but the thing is. College sports can go on fine if they just continue. They don't have to pay Zion Williamson. Let somebody else pay. Let him cash in on his talent and his and his brand and his hard work and all of those things. Nothing bad is happening to college basketball if all of a sudden he's making money. On uh, the fact that he's showing up with all these fans is good for college basketball. You don't try to kick a guy like that out. You try. You say, hey man, hope he stays a couple years. You know, I've always wondered this because they want. I remember when LeBron could could have gone to college, and he obviously was never going to. But a guy at the NCAA told me, "Man, I have a stack on uh, of, of evidence against LeBron James that he and his mom have been taking money all through high school. He'll never play in college basketball." And I said to him, "Why would you want not want LeBron James to play basketball for you? I don't I don't get the concept." And but that's how they have the mentality, like, "Oh, Zion's bad if he takes a dollar." But you can cash in on Zion Williams's popularity and take the dollar. Let me ask both of you guys: What do you think would be worse, a guilty verdict or an acquittal in this case? And I don't uh, know what a, worse means. I mean, what do you think the effects would be of one or the other? That's a really hard question. I mean, listening listening to Dan right now, and I, I think he I think it's fair to say he's a little more immersed day to day than I am in college sports. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is this case, I think, has brought some of the sort of basketball community together and realizing how unequal all of this is and, and speaking more strongly about just paying players. So, you know, worse or better, I mean, it's, I, I hesitate to say that. I think in terms of real uh, change, it would be better if it's a guilty verdict because then people like Krzyzewski can't turn around and say it's a blip. Then you've got, you know, as Steve Haney, who's Christian Dawkins' lawyer, said, you have brought this case that's like Enron, except you charge the secretaries. So Chris Dawkins was one of the runners for, for an agent in this case, right? Exactly. So that's Christian Dawkins. So I think if they're found guilty, you know, you may have more people take a hard look at it and say, wait a second, you've, you've rung these guys up on charges. This is so unfair, so unequal. So in terms of real change, I think a guilty verdict would be better. If it's not guilty, you have you have people say, oh, the federal government shouldn't have been involved. Let's just all go back to square one, not pay kids, you know, keep on going with the same ridiculous structure. Dan? I don't I don't know. This that's a it's a really good question because I can see it from both sides. I think a not guilty would be would be best for reform. I think that because it doesn't 
it, it says a jury just rejects the notion of this, and it really opens up. I mean, if there's a not guilty in all of these cases, now there's three of them, so we got to wait. I mean, it's truly open season. If the FBI can't get you, forget it. And so you can pretty much pay anything you want. But I think it has to, if it's a guilty, you can sit there and say, well, that's it. Look, we got this uh, middle manager out in Portland who was sending money around. He's got to go away for four years. We showed them. It almost might reaffirm the idea. The real question here, and, and the NCAA wants to debate, college administrators want to debate, should we pay the players? Because that's the touchstone that divides the public. You get Title IX. It's very complicated. They want that debate. They don't want the debate. Why don't we just let Zion Williamson control his name, image, and likeness? Because that's the one that everyone sits there and goes, yeah, you're right. Why Why is it so bad if Adidas is sponsoring him or Nike is sponsoring him and sponsoring Duke? All they're trying to do is control the players and control a little bit of the revenue stream. Because Nike's not going to pay that much money for most of these kids, but they want they want to control it all. So if they if they get a guilty here, I think they can shift that focus and keep the debate on should we pay the players, which is a just a morass and a wedge issue that the NCAA has won on for for as long as this has been a debate. Dan Wetzel is a national sports columnist with Yahoo Sports. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you, Stefan. And Michael Sokolov's new book is The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, a story of corruption, scandal and the big business of college basketball. Go buy it. Mike, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Stefan. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Fifty years ago last week at the Summer Olympics in Mexico City, American long jumper Bob Beeman ran through the air farther than any human had before. 29 feet, two and a half inches in all. Beeman's jump was insane. Yeah, it was at altitude and on a windy day, but it was almost two feet longer than the previous record. The photo of Beeman in full flight, mouth open, arms straight, muscles taut, legs wheeling, was etched in my mind as a kid. But there's another photo and a story that goes with it that was not familiar to me and I suspect to a lot of other people. That picture is of Beeman on the medal stand, two days after Tommy Smith and John Carlos had made their iconic black-gloved power salute protests. And the story is about how Beeman grappled with race and image and protest in the turbulent year of 1968 and after. Liam Boylan-Pett told Beeman's story in a piece in The Undefeated last week. He's here now. Hey, Liam. Hey, how's it going? Good. And joining us as well is Lewis Moore, an associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University and the author of We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality. Welcome back to the show, Lou. Thanks for having me again. Liam, I really enjoyed your interview with and story about Beeman and his relationship with uh, his remarkable athletic achievement. Let's start with what Beeman did on the medal stand for people who aren't familiar with that. Um, set the scene. Tell us what happened. Tell us about the photo. 
Yeah, so it's two days after, as you mentioned, Tommy Smith and John Carlos made their statement on the metal stand. And Bob Beeman has just about an hour or two earlier made the jump that you also spoke about that is still ridiculous to this day. Yeah, you can give some caveats here and there, but it's still just a ridiculous jump. And he's on the metal stand and he has rolled up his pants so that to reveal the black socks that he is wearing in solidarity with Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And he does not do this during the anthem, but after the anthem, he also raised his, his fist and he has this photo that you mentioned. Everybody knows the photo of Bob Beeman lunging through the air. This photo is him on the medal stand making a statement with Tommy Smith and John Carlos and his fellow medalist, Ralph Boston, who was shoeless on that day when he was standing on the medal stand in third place. All right, Lou, let's back it up now to where Bob Beeman was at the beginning of 1968. Obviously, it was one of the most tragic and tumultuous and monumental years in American history, and it reshaped the way that a lot of young black people considered civil rights and race. I think especially people like Beeman. He was an athlete, and he began to recognize that he had some power. But at the time, the beginning of 68, he's at the University of Texas, El Paso. And in February, he and his teammates traveled to New York to compete in a meet at the New York Athletic Club or at Madison Square Garden, a meet sponsored by the New York Athletic Club. And this is another backstory that I was completely unaware of or had forgotten, Lou. Tell us about that and what happened there. Yeah, so so Beeman, um, you wouldn't have thought he was going to protest in 60 at any point uh, because at that NYAC um, event, the black athletes were boycotting that event. And and Beeman, however, was one of the few who, who actually went. And what Beeman said was like, look, I'm from New York. This is a free trip to New York. And also my coach made me. But what was going on is that the NYAC was racist. Um, they didn't have any black memberships. They didn't have any Jewish memberships uh, members. And so you started to see a protest mounting like early January. And it's really a build up to say, to see if they could actually do the Olympic protest, that the Olympic boycott that they were talking about. And you got enough athletes there, enough top star athletes to say, hey, we're, we're not participating in this. So your John Carlos, your Tommy Smith, they don't go. Uh, and Bob Beeman is the one, the main one who actually goes. And, and he took a lot of flack for that. Um, this is at a time when, you know, the, the term Uncle Tom is, is thrown around, uh, you know, pretty loosely. And, and that was directed at him. It had to be incredibly dramatic and traumatic for Beeman and others. They crossed a picket line in order to compete at the garden. And they're scared. Um, I pulled up a piece that, Lou, you had linked to in uh, a story you'd written about that event for the Shadow League. Um, Dave Anderson, this is a story in the New York Times. Dave Anderson was a young reporter who just died, Dave Anderson, the great columnist. Mm. He covered the meet. The headline on his story was Negro Athletes Apprehensive But Compete in Meat Anyway. And Beeman is the lead of the piece, which describes him walking into Madison Square Garden in a red leather coat and black fedora with his teammates and saying, I'm scared, man. You can really feel the conflict building. Did that come through in your conversation with him, Liam? Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, he even says, he told me, he said, looking back on it, I, I wish I would have boycotted. Uh, he says, you live and you learn. But it's definitely something that stuck with him. And I think it kind of built towards what was coming in April of that year. 
And in April that year, Martin Luther King is assassinated. That's number one. Um, Beeman said to you in that story, Liam, when you see a nonviolent man being shot down, it just keeps building. The country has to respond in some kind of way. I was seeing so much, so much death and hate around us, so many different types of things that were not to me right. And then at UTEP later that month, there's a conference of black students that features Harry Edwards, um, who became an organizer. He was helping to organize this uh, attempted Olympic boycott and, of course, became a leader in the field of civil rights and athletics. And Dick Gregory, the comedian and civil rights activist. What's interesting, if you look at the El Paso Times, it's either April 3rd or April 4th. They have a, an editorial cartoon of Martin Luther King with a gun, and it's him, and they're blaming him for the riots in Memphis. So, you know, whatever Beeman was thinking uh, about doing post-MLK's assassination, that he knew he wasn't going to get any support. But what's going on is after the MLK assassination, you have, a, a as you said, a meeting of black students uh, with Harriet Edwards and with Dick Gregory. And Harriet Edwards is very clear about what needs to happen. It, he literally says, this is an eye for an eye, a head for a head. right? And so I think, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20-year-old student, you you internalize this differently. And, and I think because what's going on with the black athletes at that school specifically, uh, how they help win the national championship and help – how they're essentially the face of black students. I think people must have been looking to them to, to do something. And BYU, as as Liam mentions, becomes that, that perfect backdrop, that perfect opportunity for yeah, them to stand It's up. almost like the, the athletes at UTEP start to radicalize. And UTEP was a really important place in the athletic movement for, for, for black students. It was Texas Western a couple of years earlier, before 1968, and that team won the NCAA basketball championship with an all-black starting five. They beat all-white Kentucky. Um, but it was no hotbed of racial progressivism. I mean, this was straight Southern racist. There were like 250 black kids on campus, many of them athletes. You know, they were completely outnumbered. There were thousands of students at UTEP. Um, the remarkable Sports Illustrated series, The Black Athlete by Jack Olson, ran that July in 1968. And one of the stories was about UTEP. UTEP and it really situates the college in this racist landscape. We were suckered into coming here, About a black basketball player says in the story. I come from the toughest, blackest, poorest parts of the Bronx. I won't be unhappy to go back. Athletes talk about being denied a real education. Uh, one player says that white athletes got handouts from boosters, but somehow it never reaches the black athletes here. And Beeman is quoted in that piece. And again, you can see the sort of activist emerging. If a Negro looks for help, he doesn't find it, Bob Beeman says. I have a four-year-old car that needs $300 worth of repairs. I don't know where I'm going to get the money to fix it. If I were the white long jump champion, that car would be fixed like magic. See that anger building. Oh, oh, yeah, and 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 also, just, I, I think it's building within the students, and and like I like you say, like this is the opportunity. They're tired of being called the N word. They're tired of just being used. Um, and and something's going to happen, and BYU becomes that that point for them. Right. So, Liam, tell us what happens at BYU. The the the, the UTEP athletes get together and they organize a boycott. Why? What happened? Yeah, as you mentioned. Uh, Martin Luther King's assassination was the kind of final nail in the coffin of these guys are going to do something. And they met as a small group and decided they were going to boycott. So then they went to Vandenberg, their coach, they went to Coach Vandenberg's apartment and told him, and he was not as kind. In, in New York, he had kind of 
lived this life of, you know, you don't have to compete. This is, he was scared too, I think, as you mentioned, yeah. Demon said he was scared. And he kind of said, you know, you, you guys don't have to compete, but it was different this time. Um, this was a conference meet. This was the NCAA season. And I think he was under a lot of pressure from the administrators in his school, because as you mentioned, it kind of had become a thing at this school there was black athletes who were kind of who were starting to stand up for what they believed in and the administrators didn't know how to handle it and the way they reacted was swiftly they said if you're not competing you're off the team and your scholarship will not be back come next fall and that's what happened that's exactly what happened uh the guy who ended up breaking the world record by almost two feet was kicked off his college team and lost his scholarship just six months before there's another track meet that we should probably mention here lou and that's after the BYU boycott, and it's at UTEP. At this point, what's Beeman's status, and what's the status of his fellow of, of uh, fellow teammates, and what happens? Oh, oh, yeah, they're off the team. All eight of them are off the team, and they get kicked by Wisconsin. So, and Wisconsin wins most of the sprinting events. But what's interesting about this track meet is that you have two major protests during the track meet. Um, black women um, students at the school protested and and they formed they locked hands on the track um and they stopped they tried to stop a couple races so the beginning of the event i believe the 110 hurdles they locked hands to try to stop the race and and the meet um delayed for 30 minutes before the police could move them and then they tried it again at another part in the meet and the police just kind of forcefully uh removed them and what's interesting if you look at there's an editorial letter to the editor in in el paso times where a letter writer writes in and just talks about how you know deplorable this is for these students to protest and don't they know they're messing it up uh for other black athletes when they do these things but money was raised for those eight students to come back and mm-hmm. fall. So just think about this kind of like modern day GoFundMe, which is really cool. So enough scholarship money was was raised for them to come back uh, to, to school. So did Beeman end up going back? Yeah, Beeman did go back to school. He uh, was he ended up getting drafted by the Phoenix Suns that next NBA draft, however. And so he then left school and eventually graduated from Adelphi University in 1972. And that's where he ended up getting his college degree from. And Beeman, though, goes and trains for the Olympics in Houston. He gets to Mexico City. Look, as a, as a sporting phenomenon, the jump is absolutely <laughs> transcendent. Um, he jumped so far, officials had to go find a tape measure that would work. Um, and he was celebrated not – he was celebrated for his achievement – but not for his action on the medal stand. Obviously, Smith and Carlos got a lot of attention. They were vilified in the mainstream press, Lou, and and you've documented a lot of this. But Beeman's gesture went largely unnoticed. Can you contrast what happened there, Lou? I mean, and what you found in sort of pouring through old um, newspapers from the time? Yeah, um, it's really interesting with him. Um, So there's, there's, you'll read some reports um, where, you know, if the, the newspaper sent the reporter to Mexico City, and they'll say, you know, Beeman did this this fantastic leap, and then they'll say something about the socks, right? And and some only a few people will say he disrespected the socks, but I think it largely gets missed by the public because most of the talk about Beeman is in contrast with Carlos and Smith, and it's this glowing thing about him how he stood in honor. So the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, one of their sports writer, does this and says, "All I see is this proud black man, and John, you know, other, other black athletes should do this." Um, there's another editorial in Chicago's American, and that's the same newspaper that uh, Musburger was writing for, where he called Smith and Carlos black stormtroopers. Yeah, Brett Musburger. Um, yep. 
Right. Their editorial essentially praises Beeman and says more black athletes need to be like him. Um, so there's, you know, they miss, it's, it's funny to me because they miss the protest, right? They miss the socks, the meaning of the socks. And he even says it at that moment, you know, this is a protest. He says it at that moment. He says it when he gets back to El Paso a week later. And because I think they're searching for that good face to put on, right? And eventually they'll get it uh, even better with George Foreman. But because they're searching that for that black athlete to counter what Smith and Carlos do, and they don't get it with Lee Evans, they think they kind of get it with Beeman. Beeman becomes that guy, right? That says, well, you know, if black athletes are just like Bob Beeman, we'll be okay. And they completely miss what he was saying. And is it, is it almost just because of the photo of him? I mean, he like did a black power salute on the medal stand. He did exactly what Tommy Smith and John Carlos did. Is it that the photo didn't get picked up? Is it that, or do you think there was some sort of willful desire to ignore the protest and, as you say, Lou, sort of hold up Beeman as the model, you know, Negro athlete. I, I just think it's it's probably timing of the TV or what they saw in, in, you know, in these anthem protests. And I also think it's the photo. Now, now I think the photo, the famous photos from an a amateur photographer, I think the main photo that runs is actually him in the dirt, you know, with the dirt splashing up. Right. And there's a, only a few that if you go through the newspapers of him actually on the metal stand and, you know, black and white photos, you really can't pick things up. And so I just think they just completely missed, missed the story everything and they wanted somebody so bad to not be john carlos and tommy smith and for a lot of people um you know he becomes that um liam you talked to beeman obviously i mean did, did he express any sort of regrets about sort of not becoming tommy smith or john carlos i mean how does he compartmentalize the the the, the physical act the thing that got so much attention because it was so much it was such an outlier so much better than anything that anyone had ever done before versus the you know having the athletic achievements sort of maybe overlooked or not become the entire focus of of what he did in Mexico City. For him, I think it was just I say it in the piece, but I ask him, I asked him that question point blank because I thought it was something that he would be missing out on. But he replied with he he said, you know, have you, have you heard the term Beeman esque? And I, I said, yes, I have actually. And he says, you know, it's it's something spectacular. It's in the dictionary. And for him. He said that that's what he wants to be known for, for being in the dictionary. And I didn't take that to necessarily mean only because of his leap that was, quote, Beeman-esque, but because he did special things that aren't as well known, too. And he just, I think, really was happy and proud of what he did on the medal stand. But he was also really happy and proud of what he did that day with that leap. And so it was this kind of cool thing that I, being in the room with him, I expected him to say, you know, I, want, I wish more people knew about it. And he did, but it wasn't some thing. He just really wants to be known. And for him, he's happy now that it's both, I think. I haven't spoken with him since the story ran, but I really do think that he just wants to be known and he wants to do spectacular things and he wants other people to do spectacular things as well. Hey, Lou, do you think that it's important for historians like yourself to help recalibrate these moments in time to sort of give Bob Beeman the, the sort of the dual respect that he deserves for what he accomplished in 1968? Oh yeah, for sure, and and I, and I think that if we look at it, there are more athletes like a Bob Beeman out there, right? The, who who in their own way had their protests, and I think the the great story about Beeman is that you don't have to be when when something happens, right? You don't have to be full on as a protest. So when the boycotts, when they were talking boycotts, Mexico City, you know, he just wanted to go win a gold, and he wasn't part of that. But I think when your time comes and it's time to say something. 
I think it's, you know, you should say something. And, and, and I think that's what's important for these athletes to see. Like, you don't have to be that person. You know, if Cap kneels in 2016, you don't have to kneel with him right away. But there's going to come a point, especially if you're a black athlete, you know, w- when it's going to be your turn. And the beautiful thing about Bob Beeman is that he, he took his turn. I mean, he, you know, he, he protested and then he wasn't afraid to let the media know right on the spot that this is why I did it. And if you want to send me home, then send me home. You can read Liam Boylan Pet's story about Bob Beeman when the man who could fly stood down in The Undefeated. We'll post it on our show page. Liam, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks, Lewis Moore, Associate Professor of History at Grand Valley State, the author of We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And now it is time for After Ball. As we discussed, Bob Beeman and Ralph Boston's podium protests echoed the more famous ones by Tommy Smith and John Carlos, but there was no echo when it came to the third athlete on those medal stands. The guy who won silver in the 200 meters was Peter Norman of Australia. He's well known because he supported Smith and Carlos, and he, like others at those Olympics, wore an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge on his tracksuit. And when uh, Carlos forgot the black gloves that the two American runners plan to wear. It was Norman who suggested that Smith wear one glove on his right hand and Carlos wear the other glove on his left hand. The silver medalist in the long jump played no such role in history. His name was Klaus Beer. He was a 25-year-old East German. It was his second and final Olympics. An online bio notes that in his early years, he was a very good handball player. So here is my Klaus Beer. If you play a team sport as a kid, and I totally support everyone playing a team sport as a kid, you should be lucky enough to be part of a game that you will never forget. I've got three. The first one I've mentioned on the show before, my scrappy Jets beating the mighty Cubs 6-5 to five in Little League to avenge our season opening 21 to nothing defeat. The second is my Pelham New York High School ice hockey team, to which my contributions were, let's just say, limited winning the league championship in sudden death overtime. And the third is an actual personal athletic life highlight, whipping home the rebound as the Standard Star newspaper reported the next day for a last second goal to lift the winless Pelicans varsity soccer team over unbeaten Ardsley 
three to two. So I couldn't be happier that my daughter got to experience a game like one of those. She plays field hockey for Woodrow Wilson High School, the biggest public school in D.C., with an enrollment of about 1,800. The Tigers' opponent last week was the only other D.C. public school with a field hockey team, School Without Walls, which has about a third as many kids as Wilson and no athletic fields at its downtown building. Very few of the girls on either team played field hockey before high school, and the teams more often than not get stomped by the private schools that fill out their schedules, one of which, by the way, has a varsity equestrian team. But rivalry does not care about ability, and this has been an up year for Wilson and Walls Focky. That's right, Focky, field hockey, Focky. Wilson has a few talented seniors. One might play Division Three in college. Walls has a new coach, a Pakistan native who plays for the United States over 50 men's national team, who has helped narrow the competitive gap between the two schools. Wilson won a one nothing squeaker last month. All right, so I get to the Wilson field for the rematch in plenty of time. It's senior day. I want to hear the tributes and read the posters and watch the seniors run under the hoopah of their teammates' raised stick as they are introduced over the loudspeaker. Chloe, my daughter, sees me walking on the track past the sidelines and calls me over. Dad, Walsh has a guy playing for them. It's true. There's a dude on the Penguins. It's also true that Walsh's nickname is the Penguins. I learned that he's a 16-year-old foreign exchange student from the Netherlands, where boys field hockey is a totally normal sport. He is not small. He looks to be about 5'11", 170, 175, give or take. In any case, he's way bigger than all of the girls on the field. The Wilson players are understandably not happy, and they're a little bit intimidated. Let me read section 5.7.2.2 of the D.C. Interscholastic Athletic Association handbook, which governs public school sports in the city. Boys on girls teams. A school may not permit a boy to participate in a girls team in any sport if the school's overall boys athletic participation exceeds the girls. That's Title IX talking right there, the idea being that girls have to have equal opportunity to play sports as boys. The D.C. State Athletic Association, which governs events that include public, private, charter, and independent schools in D.C., like track meets and soccer championships, is more explicit. Quote, if a school sponsors only a girls team in a particular sport, boys shall not be permitted to participate on the girls team. I don't know what Wall's participation numbers are, but technically, in this case, it doesn't matter. And that's because with just two public school teams in the city, field hockey isn't a sanctioned sport. It's a club, and it's not clear what, if any, local guidelines apply. Every fall, there are examples around the country of boys trying to play on girls' field hockey teams. In 2016, another boy from the Netherlands was barred from the Rye New York High School varsity. He's on the U.S. men's junior national team now. In 2012, a boy who grew up playing in Ireland was barred from his high school varsity on Long Island. He then chose not to attempt to play for the boarding school he attended outside of D.C., both practiced with and helped coach their high school teams. One of the girls on the Walls team tells me they've liked having the Dutch player on the team, that he's helped teach them skills and motivated them. On the flip side, Massachusetts allows boys to play because of a 1979 court ruling that said that barring boys from girls teams violated the state's Equal Rights Amendment. Boys play for dozens of schools in Massachusetts every year, and the question of fairness is raised pretty much every year. This doesn't seem complicated to me. Women 
fought for decades to gain access to sports, and it's still not equal. D.C. public schools were hit with two federal Title IX complaints in recent years, and the city's participation numbers still aren't balanced. Letting a boy play on a girl's team denies opportunities for girls in some fashion, either a roster spot or playing time, and the standard for other D.C. interscholastic sports is clear. Then there's the testosterone part. Post-pubescent boys might not have any skill advantage in field hockey, but they have a profound biological advantage in size, strength, and speed. That's not only unfair, it can be dangerous. As a doctor at Children's Hospital in Boston told the Boston Globe's Shira Springer in 2015, teenage boys have, quote, the equivalent of a performance-enhancing drug circulating in their system relative to the girls they're playing against, end quote. Springer noted that 16 to 18-year-old boys have 10 times as much testosterone in their bodies as girls the same age. But at the Wilson-Walls game, the coaches and refs talk it over, and everyone agrees to let the Dutch boy play. The Wilson coach tells me after the game that she was apprehensive and was relieved, spoiler alert, that no one was injured. Except for a few minutes at the start, the boy plays the entire game. He wears shorts, not a skirt like everybody else. He has by far the strongest drive on the field, whacking the ball, and he's a pretty good dribbler. He backs down defenders like Shaq and even manages to draw two green card fouls against Wilson girls, which come with a two-minute penalty for allegedly getting tripped. But the Wilson girls do a fantastic job of containing him. Every poke check or blocked shot gets a big cheer from the Wilson players and fans. After a scoreless first half, Wilson takes the lead on a goal by the future D3 player, Julia. The game is end-to-end. There's lots of student and parent fans for both teams. The Wilson dad sitting next to me, bless his heart, is screaming, obstruction, every time the Dutch boy backs his butt into a Wilson defender. With 10 seconds to play, Wilson is called for another foul against the Dutch kid, giving Walls a penalty corner, which is like a soccer corner kick, but much more complicated to explain. Walls doesn't score, but it immediately gets gets a second corner, and this time the Dutch boy does put the ball in the cage, one-to-one. Sudden death overtime, 10 minutes, 7 versus 7 instead of 11 v. 11. The atmosphere is tense. The varsity football team has shown up for practice, and they're totally into it. As the clock ticks down, the Walls and Wilson players are visibly gassed. They can barely run, let alone manage decent shots. Nobody scores, which means... Penalty strokes, seven yards out. You have to scoop, flick, or push the ball. You can't smack it. Five girls take turns. Wilson goes make, make, miss, make, miss. Two misses. Walls goes make, make, miss, miss. And here's Wilson Jr., Hannah Gage, with the live stream call of the final Walls shot. (laughs) A heroic save by the sophomore goalkeeper for the win. The Wilson girls dogpile in front of the goal. Football players join the celebration. A few feet away, the Walls players surround and console their goalkeeper. A couple of Walls girls fall to their knees in tears. There's a fall chill in the air. It's a quintessential high school sports moment all around. I'm thrilled I got to watch it, but more thrilled that the girls got to live it.
That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.